Welcome to the U.S. Family Office Realestate.com podcast with your host, DJ Van Curen. He's from the Arsenal Family Office. Each podcast is about real estate-related topics specifically for family offices. Now your host, DJ Van Curen. Welcome to U.S. Family Office Realestate.com. Today, we're going to talk about real estate in the family office, but on the legal side. Um, the person that we have with us today is Tom Handler from Handler Fair, which, uh, as since I got started in the family office community, it's 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 a name that many many people know. And uh, in fact, Tom was, and I think I've mentioned this to you before, Tom is um, that you've been very gracious even from the first time that we started becoming part of the family office community and and um, you know giving input on on types of conferences to attend and you know some key people etc. And obviously you're you've, you're very well known for for. Uh, family office and your area of expertise, and you've done that over time. Um, but welcome to the uh, podcast today, Tom. Thanks, DJ. It's a it's a pleasure to be here, and it's been our pleasure to work with you and get to know you and your group. Well, thank you very much. Well, why don't you briefly tell us a little bit about um, Handler Fair and sort of the origins? Because in my mind, uh, and many other people mind too, when they hear Handler Fair, they think. Family office legal. I mean, like the this is the group that you want to be working with. So, why don't you tell us a little bit about your firm and, and the background? Would be great. Thank you. Um, well, I suppose there, there's some benefit to longevity. Uh, we were one of the well, we were probably the first firm in the space that actually re- recognized it as a separate industry. So, we created the advanced planning and family office practice group in 1988. Uh, we believe the first firm to do so. That there's one firm in LA that was close to us, so I'll, I'll let them claim it at the same time. But I, th- I think we were first, but neither one of us can remember the exact date. So uh, at least we're one of the first two. And as a result of that, uh, we watched the family office industry develop around us in 1988. Uh, there were no associations, not in the world. There was no uh, no place to go. There was no very little research other than governance, psychology, therapy-type publications and research. There was very little on how family offices were structured or legal issues or risk management, any of the hard sciences versus sociology and psychology. So in 89, Family Office Exchange formed in Chicago. IPI formed in New York and San Francisco. Family Wealth Alliance spun out of uh, Family Office Exchange. Family Office Association uh, was started in Greenwich and then ultimately Family Office Club, Family Office Group, which is the LinkedIn Family Office Group, now based in Miami, was most recent on the scene. So we have five U.S. Family Office Associations, a Chinese Family Office Association, uh, one in Singapore, one in Brazil, uh, a number in Europe uh, and in Canada. And so the industry has gone from – it's still a nation industry, but there's much more out there than there was. So by being an early – uh, we've been able to grow at the space and, and uh, attempt to be a thought leader and stay on top of where it's headed. So our, our practice uh, is based out of Chicago with offices in uh, Palm Beach, Washington, D.C., and one of the suburbs of Chicago, and we travel the country from there. We ha- have had offices in other countries uh, in the past, and uh, it's a global practice. Uh, we cover all the states and territories in about 40 countries, and the entire client base are family businesses and family offices, and then maybe 10% uh, 
C-suite executives, celebrities, professional athletes, people like that. So it's been geared to the family business and wealth industry from day one, and we've attempted to create value there by having attorneys that are also business people with accounting backgrounds, CPAs and MBAs and masters in tax and CFPs and CFAs and other quantitative uh, and business qualifications so that we could deal with the space in an effective manner and not be afraid of the quantitative analysis that, that goes with it. Um, that's about the gist of it. Well, as I've said you know, to you before, it's, I've gone a number of times you know, I try to be a resource for people too, and even if there's, you know, I always say if, if there's anything I can do, let me know, or if they're talking about a particular situation and I know somebody that can help, you know, I try to do that, and a number of times I've, I've got your name up and they're like, you know, you're, we're already working with Tom, so what you're doing and, and your longevity. That's what we like is, to hear, by the way. <laughs> it's definitely paying off. It's definitely paying off. <laughs> So, so you know, one of the one of the um, people that we both are, are, uh, are friends with actually, and um, it started with a comment Wendy made. Wendy Kraft uh, made uh, when I first you know started uh, becoming part of the community, and and you know you had mentioned some stuff too that that um, supported that was the importance of education for families. And the more that I get into this, the more. Um, that I do realize that um, education and information is extremely important, especially in a manner that might be, um, you know, where uh, people can can find out the information without, without being embarrassed or you know to ask or not wanting to ask, etc. And that's one of these reasons for these podcasts and and with a focus on on real estate. So one of the um, first questions I have for you, Tom, is. How big of a part do you see real estate playing in family offices uh, as part of their overall portfolio today? Well, I think I'll answer it in, in two parts, uh, first with respect to U.S. families and then with respect to international families. So with respect to U.S. family offices, uh, real estate is omnipresent. Uh, it is a real asset. Uh, to some extent, it has, it's a commodity, and yet it's a commodity that has potential appreciation and cash flow, unlike gold, where there's just not going to be an income stream, right? So you have a whole different level of opportunity, and in part, uh, real estate is a, is a much more fragmented market. It's a much more imperfect market than you know, perhaps a public stock market, for example. And at, at a certain deal size, there's not a lot of players or fewer players. As you go smaller, the market's even more imperfect. So the opportunity f- to create value, get, you know, get alpha out of these deals is there. Uh, and even at the high level, uh, they start to look institutionally priced with institutional type returns, uh, but those are you know welcome as well. And the appreciation, of course, is growing without uh, triggering ongoing tax until the property is ultimately liquidated, unless it's like kind exchanged into something else, in which case the tax is deferred. So it's a pretty uh, a very favorable asset. It serves that commodity hedge function. It isn't necessarily correlated to different elements of the economy, so depending on the family's portfolio, it can serve a hedging function. And uh, families tend to be fairly astute about going into sectors that have favorable tax provisions. And so the government, over time, has picked areas that are more favored, and, and in particular, oil and gas, 
uh, real estate and agribusiness uh, are up there. So with respect to agribusiness, uh, you know, that's farms and ranches, both the operations and the underlying land, which coincidentally often have oil and gas interests below them. So you can potentially get all three. And the tax benefits are so advantageous, both federally and state and local incentives, that it simply ups your IRR. So it's in the portfolios as a hedge, as a commodity, as a, as a source of alpha through many sources, and in part deferred yield because the appreciation isn't taxed until somewhere down the road. So it's a very attractive asset. Uh, it would be shocking to look at the portfolio of a half billion dollar family with more than a half billion in AUM and then not have a significant real estate component in the portfolio. I don't think I've ever encountered such a family after they, you know, exited their initial business. You know, initially there might be a concentration in a company that goes public or something, but once they begin to build out, real estate is almost certainly there. International families uh, have a large component in real estate, and in particular, you know, as as so many parts of the world are trying to immigrate here. Uh, if you look at the charts of immigration over the years, you know, for 150 years it was either Great Britain or Germany where almost everybody came from, and now, you know, China, Pacific Rim, Latin America are completely different sources, so people are coming from everywhere. And in part, the U.S. is viewed as a safe haven. So despite the many issues that we have and our absurd litigation scheme, our extended scopes of liability, uh, you know, our tort uh, laws, and our high levels of income taxation, estate taxation, and other taxes, uh, we are still viewed as the least likely country to expropriate their assets. And so people from places like China and Russia and Brazil and uh, Venezuela and Argentina are trying to get assets here and buy real property so that, uh, one, they have a commodity-type hedging investment. It's something that's difficult to steal or take because it exists and you can touch it and find it. And so often the first venture into the U.S. or into other countries, for that matter, for these international family offices is they'll often buy real estate before they start buying businesses and get involved in operating companies. So it's a significant piece of the equation uh, and right now, we're seeing a lot of, uh, particularly Venezuela, Argentine, and Chinese families looking all over the place for real estate. And over the last 10 years, the Brazil family has been buying up, you know, South Florida in droves. And I think that's going to continue. So I think we'll still see a significant amount of investment from international family offices. And I want to say two years ago, uh, a number of surveys were done, and the number one investment that families in, expected to make, and I want to say this is late 2015 or early 2016, real estate was the number one sector. So it's definitely uh, on the high priority list for family offices. And that has, and you sort of brought it up in one of your comments, but about the, I don't want to say tax haven, but the benefits for the international investors. And was there some new rules or anything that came up at the beginning of this year that actually even increases, um, you know, the, the, the outlook for international investors, or has it always been the same? Um, well, I think it's been good. Uh, I think it's always enhanced when the possibility of less onerous taxation. So notwithstanding our rates, 
the nominal rates. The effective rates are the highest individual tax rates in the world because we tax things others don't, and we have tons of phase-outs and cutoffs and disallowances. And so, in effect, we're the highest individual taxpayers and we're the highest corporate taxpayers in the world. That's not a good scenario for long-term you know, global opportunities. And so to the extent that the plan introduced by Trump, I don't know who the author of it was, but it's very Reagan-esque in its approach. And in that regard, I believe absolutely pointed in the right direction. Uh, people are very Pavlovian with respect to tax policy and how they react. And I think that if the rates level out individually and corporate-wise, this becomes an even more attractive place to invest. And the possibility of you know, trillions of dollars coming back into the U.S. Uh, from our you know, corporations based here that are now being camped offshore and con- companies in other countries uh, setting up here that would not come here because of our rates, it becomes a game changer. So if any of those things happen, this could kick up into high gear very quickly uh, and could really be a, a boon like we haven't seen in a long time. Mm. All right, so go back to going back to what you were talking about with a lot of families having real estate and and I think it's it is inevitable because even if it's not investment it might be a second home, it might be a vacation home, it might be their primary residence, etc. But do you see any um is there any type of planning that is typically overlooked when as it relates to people's real estate? Uh, in the various family offices and perhaps how they planned either for passing it along to the next generation or into a foundation um, or whatnot? Yeah, yeah, well, you ask a very good question, and I'm going to give you an honest answer, and that is that um, to determine an optimal structure for any sophisticated family, maybe $10 million, you know, net worth on up to multi-billions, to, to do it properly requires understanding of securities laws, state and local laws, federal laws, tax laws, estate laws, asset protection laws, premarital planning laws. So it's a, a complicated scenario. And the result of not having that, those expertise weighing, weighing in on the decision means that many of the structures in place were put in by real estate lawyers or business lawyers or tax planners or estate planners, and they never talked to their colleagues in those other areas to make sure that what they were doing was correct or even optimized. And so they put something in place that's kind of okay, but it's not really great. So what we found almost across the board is that the structures tend to be very subpar. You know, they're, they're okay or they're acceptable, they accomplish one objective, but they certainly are not accomplishing multiple objectives. So a couple of examples of that would be, you know, generally families are pretty good about figuring out the exterior liability protection from, you know, third-party lawsuits from the outside. And so most, most properties are held in some sort of liability-protected asset, you know, LLCs or limited partnerships or something where uh, the family can't lose its personal net worth as a result of something going sideways. That being said, you know, many times this is done in corporations. Uh, and with S-corporations, well, you have conduit tax treatment, but many states tax S-corporations. That's a problem. You can use LLCs. Some states tax LLCs. That can be a problem as well. Um, Many times these are in single-member LLCs. Well, in certain states, if you have single-member LLC, you have no liability protection or a risk of no liability protection because the cases have allowed people to pierce those enterprises. And so in some cases, 
you need more than a single member LLC. You need to make it a, a multiple member LLC so it's respected. Or you put another bucket around it like a family holding company that is itself an LLC or a family limited partnership or a family series limited liability company. And that kind of brings up the next issue, which is the idea that having liability around the entity is kind of one part of asset preservation. You've got third-party or exterior liability. You've got interior liability where one deal can blow up another deal or assets can adversely affect each other. And then the third area of asset preservation is sort of a start-over-again fund or the asset protection component. And so often the entities are set up to take into account the exterior liability protection, and that's where they stop. So, for example, one can use a series LLC, and these were derived from international structures where within an entity you can hold different assets in buckets, and a bucket, can, if it implodes, cannot cross over the wall into the next cell or series or element and adversely affect the other buckets. So in the United States, a number of states, approximately 14 in both territories and a number of states have it pending, have adopted these series LLC uh, rules into their uh, state legislation. So it allows you to have series A, series B, series C, and if one piece of real estate in series A in its own LLC blows up, first they've got to get around the LLC, then they have to go through the series, and they cannot get at the other series. So it protects the projects from each other. So not surprisingly, these were uh, initially used pretty heavily by investment clubs and real estate people in particular because of that, that factor. So the series LLC to back up whatever entity you're in is a good thought. And years back, we didn't have LLCs. You know, they're a relatively new development. We, the only conduit entity we had were limited partnerships and straight partnerships, which carried with them liability. In a limited partnership, the general partner is 100% liable if they're not incorporated to meet a series of tests. And so a lot of these were set up as S-corporations. The problem with S-corporations is you have a built-in gains tax. So as the assets appreciate, you run the risk of a huge tax down the road when this thing unwinds, you can never terminate, you can never sell it because you're going to take that big tax hit. So they're not a great structure. So we try to unwind those, phase them out, and get these assets into LLCs so that future appreciation is not going to be subject to federal and state taxation on the gain. And then even worse, there's an awful lot of farms and ranches, like a disturbing number of major properties held in C corporations. And you know, that may have been a grand idea at some point in time, but it's certainly not a grand idea today. So you have both a corporate level taxation and a built-in gains tax. When you, when you disperse the assets out in the form of dividend, the taxpayers pay individual tax on it again. So it's a very inefficient structure, and yet a lot of real estate is owned in those structures. So the general idea is, in this day and age, you want the asset in an LLC, and the question is, the, is that LLC in some kind of a family holding company, like a family limited partnership, or a family limited liability company, or a series limited liability company? And in Canada, these are LLPs. In other countries, they call them different things, but they function like series LLCs or straight LLCs, uh, and that makes a lot of sense. So you sort of have a, a, belts and suspend, a belt and suspenders approach. That was the famous, uh, famous approach taken by Mike Ditka, uh, the coach of the Bears Super Bowl, Bowl team and Hall of Famer. And uh, they saw him at a game and were interviewing him. They said, why do you wear a belt and braces? And he said, well, you know, when you're trying to keep your pants on, you can't be too sure. And so the same concept holds here. 
when you're trying to protect assets, it's good to have a plan. It's good to have a fallback plan. And it may even be uh, important to have a third fallback plan. So in this kind of planning, uh, not enough attention is paid to those kind of minor issues which have major consequences. And then finally, and probably the biggest area that's overlooked, in my opinion, uh, is that uh, real estate families in particular uh, are surprisingly lax in their securities compliance. Uh, and by that I mean they don't think the Dodd-Frank Act applies to them. It most certainly does. Uh, they frequently operate as broker-dealers and are not registered as broker-dealers. They frequently should have RIA registration, and they don't have that registration. And so the idea of you know a couple guys coming together and doing a deal isn't as simple as it looks. And in the mind of the SEC, I can assure you that a tremendous amount of the time uh, the SEC would view the transaction as a broker-dealer type relationship, and then you're subject to prosecution as an unregistered broker-dealer. So that's probably the biggest gaping hole in compliance. Registration as a family office or as an RIA is up there, and then minor you know, other securities compliance rules come into play. But uh, Dodd-Frank and broker-dealer are the, uh, the biggest concerns, I think. All right, so I want to come back to that because I think that um, there's a couple things, and, and, and I, I really want to dive into that more after the break here. Um, the one thing, though, that, I, that I, I, I want to make sure that we don't pass over is when you were talking about a lot of the planning that people don't have in place and what they need to do, it seems to me that there's a lot of um, people, and, and you know, even our patriarch, for example, they've worked with an attorney, local attorney, for 20, 25 years, and so they trust them. Um, but from my perspective, it just it doesn't necessarily mean that they have the expertise in order to help in every single area. And so my guess would be that you know that, that everybody that you sit down with might only be what seventy or eighty percent um, with their legal properly done. Is that safe to say? It's never. If, if I, I can't were... imagine you come across somebody that's a hundred percent in good shape. Well, nobody could even be 100% because you have compete, competing rules, right, that conflict and contradict each other. So you could solve an income tax problem, you create an estate tax problem. You do something for the prenup, and it makes it difficult to, to you know, uh, process the estate plan you had in mind. So no one could get to 100. But if I saw a family that we hadn't worked with come in the door that was at 70 or 80, they would be award-winning. Uh, that's not the case. I would say the best families are – maybe 80 to 85% efficient, and that's after diligent work, very fine attorneys, a lot of thought and a lot of effort. Most families come in well below that bar. Uh, and I think yeah. that almost all, all families who are successful, they're going to rely on trusted advisor to help them get there. You know, and, we, and I've right. been in that spot. I've started with people who had next to nothing, and in 10 years, you know, they're billionaires, uh, and that's happened a number of times. And, and living through that process, you know, you make some good friends, and they tend to stick with the people that help get them there, and that makes a lot of sense. But in the same, in the same reason that there are higher levels of specialists, you know, there are intellectual property specialists, and those are those who specialize in chemical biology things, and those who specialize in engineering things, and those who are in medical devices. And, you know, when you've need something in those areas, you want that expert who's a super expert in that area um, to have right. the most efficient output. And the same thing, I think, should be the case with these families. The reality is that 
the firms that do this, the family office specialty law firms or accounting firms or what I'll call advanced planning firms, there's not very many. There's a tiny handful. So it's a relatively small industry. I think a lot of the largest firms try to do this. Uh, they don't have a high enough volume, and so they really can't benchmark. They don't know what best practices are. They're not committed to it. And the attorneys don't really share the information. So maybe one partner has three family offices, another one has one, the next five don't have any, another guy has one, and they don't really pool the resources and don't have the experiential background to really know what it should look like. And that takes a team. You know, it takes a securities guy, a tax guy, international tax guy, business planner, uh, you know, estate planner. They've all got to work on a team, and they have to have senior enough level experience to be able to spot the opportunity. That's why I think it's very difficult because there's just not many specialists in, in these kind of areas. Got it. Well, Tom, let's take a quick break here, and then I want to come back into the security component because, you know, one of the trends that are um, continuing to happen are co-investments uh, between families. So let's take a quick break, and then, uh, you know, I'd like to, to readdress that. Hi, this is Jim Freed, the host of Freed on Business on 880 AM, The Biz in Miami. And you're listening to the U.S. Family Office Realestate.com podcast. The podcast provides you real estate information designed specifically for family offices. Make sure you check out U.S. Family Office Realestate.com for educational information for family offices, including white papers, fact sheets, videos, and podcasts. You'll also find information on specific markets and assets, real estate cycles, tax-efficient real estate investing ideas, and much, much more. That's U.S. Family Office, realestate.com. Information for family offices, by a family office. So we're back at usfamilyofficerealestate.com with Tom Handler from Handler Fair, a law firm out of uh, family office law firm out of Chicago, and one of the uh, predominant ones. Um, Tom, before the break, um, we had you started to talk about an area uh, that I do think is extremely important and one that uh, does does you know bring up some liability um, that a lot of families I don't think realize. I and that's on the security side. Um, you know, I've been involved in, in, in the securities industry in some capacity for about 20 plus years. And so, from the from the first person that um, I worked for who scared the bejesus out of me, you know, I, I became very aware very quick of, you know, what could um, uh, what some possible ramifications are. Uh, and as I mentioned before the break, too, with these co-investments that are happening more and more amongst families, there seems to be a lot of uh, situations that families don't realize that they're in. So let's go back, and I'd like you to talk about that um, and, and, and what you see is happening and, and what the potential problems are and what families aren't aware of that they need to be aware of. Sure. I, I think the um, the threshold issue is – the law is not particularly clear. It's not, it's not well reported, uh, I think, by design. So unlike 
the IRS that has private revenue rulings, uh, private letter rulings, revenue rulings, advisory notices, uh, tax court cases, uh, you know, regulate. You have a, a large body of written law that you can follow. So at least to some degree, you have some sense of precedent. The, the SEC does not operate that way. So, for example, we did a reverse merger pooling transaction, you know, uh, took a, a, a large company public through that structure, uh, and the exact structure was approved by the Chicago IRS District Office. And we did the almost identical transaction uh, on the East Coast less than two months later, and the East Coast Office said, no, this is not an acceptable transaction. And our response was, we just did this identical transaction. It was just approved. And they said, we're not bound by what the other offices do which, of course, is some sort of a shocking result. So there isn't necessarily consistent, even within an office, depending on who your agent happens to be, there isn't consistency among offices, and they don't report their results. So the dilemma is you don't know what they are or are not going to do. They have unlimited power, unfettered discretion, and virtually no congressional oversight. So you tend to have a lot of young, aggressive, unseasoned attorneys with tremendous power doing what they think is right, whether it's right or not, or whether they're technically correct is a whole other matter, and you run the risk. If you were on the radar screen, you have a problem. So it's an important thing to avoid because the presumption is you're guilty. They just declare you guilty, and they're kind of the judge, jury, and executioner. You then can spend a million, five, and three years of your time in, in legal fees, and at the end of it, now you're innocent. Well, that wasn't a victory because you're out a million five. Or worse, you spend a million five and you're not innocent. Now you get fined for something that you didn't even know you were violating a rule. So it's, it's a very slippery slope. And I want to give you a couple of examples. Uh, and I believe this was a, two California firms, but, and I'm aware of many of these, but I'm picking two as examples. So scenario number one, accounting firm introduces two clients to each other because they – are going to do a transaction. The CPA firm doesn't charge the one client anything, charges the other client just for handling the transaction, structuring, tax work, accounting work, doesn't charge a commission or any type of fee based on the transaction, and the SEC comes in and declares the CPA firm should have been registered as a broker-dealer. CPA firm loses. Right? Number two, law firm introduces two clients doesn't get paid by either client, clients do a deal together, the law firm is deemed a broker-dealer. So under that standard, you get a sense of just how broadly this could be interpreted. So when families are doing direct deals and the, the prevalence of direct deals is growing globally, it's becoming much more common. Uh, you know, as you know, uh, we do uh, uh, a conference uh, once a year specifically to have family, our families talking to each other about direct investments, and it's a full-day conference that sells out, you know, every single, sells out the wrong word, but it's fully attended every single year because there's great interest in that. So in making an introduction or putting a deal together, well, it could be a joint venture. You come together jointly and do it. Uh, if you've got three people involved, you know, who's leading the deal? Is the lead person a promoter? Are they the broker? And, you know, how about if the introduction came from a third party? Almost anybody in that scenario could potentially be the broker-dealer. Therein lies the problem. Or if a deal goes south, uh, the, the party that's disaffected will point the finger to whoever's running a deal and say, oh, you know, 
they got us together with this guy and them, and you know they're the broker dealer, and they violated securities laws. And of course, the primary remedy for a violation is rescission, which means if the deal goes forward, they just sit quiet and life's pretty good. If the deal doesn't work, they're entitled to their money back. So in effect, they get a guarantee. If you violate the securities laws, you've in effect guaranteed their investment, which is too good of a deal. So it, it's a tough area. So how you do things, how you document things, how the deal comes together is very important. Uh, whether fees are charged, there's a whole host of relevant issues. So from the cases, you don't have to charge a fee. Uh, however, charging a fee is a significant factor in making the determination. It's not determinative, but it's a factor. So you have this laundry list of best practices and worst practices, and in doing these transactions, I would simply suggest that families should be more cautious, uh, rely more on their counsel uh, to make sure that they are not putting themselves in a difficult situation. So, you know, those two examples you brought up, it's, it sort of baffles me, to be honest with you. And, Shocking, and isn't it? The industry, it, that it, you're, you're just introducing. You're not making any money off the thing. And you're just putting, letting a couple of people, you know, meet each other, and, and yet you lose. Um, so, so let's take this a step further, and let's say that there's a family that wants to do a deal, and then they ask other families to invest with them. I mean, I would think that if the law firm or the accounting firm got in trouble with, you know, with just introducing people, that one family trying to do a deal with another family, and, and you know, I mean, that, that has to be something that would be even more scrutinized. Well, I think it depends on the office, and the individual agent involved. I think if, uh, I mean, one of the keys of direct investing is that the families often do this on a pair-pursue basis with the family running the deal so that there are no fees charged. In effect, they're coming in on the same basis, you know, uh, know, pro rata averages. And so, you know, that's a positive factor that could pull you out uh, of that pro. Again, it's not definitive or determinative, but it's a significant factor that might pull you out. So I think you look at the totality of what you're doing and, and saying, look, you know, we're thinking of putting this deal together. We know a couple of other parties that are interested. You know, here's our thought. What do you think? And you know, bringing the families together like that, uh, that looks more like a joint venture uh, as opposed to you, know, you getting three people in a room and saying, hey, we want to introduce you to each other. You, you three should do a deal together, and we can run it for you. That, that's a more dangerous scenario. So uh, I think the methodology of how you go about this matters. And, and over time, this will eventually flush out. You would think it would be flushed out by now, but it's not. I suppose the good news is that you know, the SEC is not particularly targeting family offices uh, they they were, were very quiet for a period of years. They have other fish to fry. And I've heard people argue that, you know, if the SEC did its job, we wouldn't need Dodd-Frank, that this massive statute uh, that has been analogized to a howitzer when a fly swatter would have sufficed, uh, we're now stuck with, and what it ultimately means remains to be seen, but it's there, right? And so the risk is that this could be used to prosecute anybody uh, for either not registering as a family office, for uh, serving as a, a broker-dealer, or doing anything appropriate. And we've also found families with all kinds of, you know, not, not recording blocks of stock in public, you know, 13-8, 16, 
Section 16 violations, a lot of little inadvertent problems that we didn't expect. So in the process of working with a number of families looking for Dodd-Frank compliance, specifically trying to give them an opinion, do you have to register an RIA or what do we have to do to keep you from being an RIA uh, or what do we do to keep you an RIA and not a broker-dealer? In the process of going through that, we found all kinds of other inadvertent CFTC state securities violations and other federal violations that they just weren't aware of. And so these rules are admittedly complicated. Uh, someone has to think about it, look at it. If the family is sort of not teed up or sensitized to it, they're very easy to miss. And an inadvertent miss, unfortunately, ignorance is no, you know, no defense. And so the key is to bring a compliant as quickly as you can and you know, do the mea culpa and, and uh, try to get to them before they get to you so that you can demonstrate due diligence and good faith in complying with the law, even if you missed missed some filings or made some mistakes. Yeah, the 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 one um, conversation that has come up numerous times um, or questions is about that registration as an RIA, right? Uh, for for what you're doing, and you know, today this co-investment is coming up more and more. In fact, today it was there was an article in the Wall Street Journal talking about you know, families coming together, talking about the pro family, which I knew they get together, I think it's twice a year, down in his ranch in Texas, talking about deals. And then today in Prequin, there was an actual um, uh, article talking about co-investments. And, you know, it says that, uh, you know, 30% of the fam- of family offices, at least in, in their from their data, are, are not co-investing. But then you've got 19 that are considering it and 52% of their pool, of their poll, um, is doing co-investing. So it, it, it sure. is happening more and more, and it's a topic that, you know, people don't bring up. I've got one more question, and then, you know, we could we could go on here quite a long, honestly, Tom, for quite a long time, and, and um, so it would be great to have you back. But you brought up one topic that's not necessarily real estate related, but um, I think it's it's a very – it's a question that does come up, and that has to do registering as a family office. What does that actually mean, and when is it to be done, and what happens if you don't do it? Sure. Well, in the past, uh, there was a family office exemption that was fairly broad, and it related to number of people. And it didn't have anywhere near the detail or prohibitions the current exemption has. So that long-standing family office exemption from registration as a RIA <coughs> uh, went by the wayside, was superseded by Dodd-Frank that has very detailed rules on what you can and can't do. And so uh, it defines very carefully family members uh, as lineal descendants of a chosen person within so many generations. And so who you pick kind of determines how many family members you can look at and what line they're in. So going back to the ancestor will determine what the exemption falls to. Adopted children are included. And uh, within the family, you can keep going down lineals and and be exempt. Uh, The dilemma becomes, well, what happens when someone gets divorced? Well, they they can stay in the deals they're in, when those deals close out, they're out, and they can't go into any new deals, so you won't lose your exemption, even though technically they no longer qualify as family. One of the key areas, which I think they made a mistake on this, though it was well-intended, it wasn't a good idea, uh, and that was they 
change the definition of family to include key advisors in the family office. And by this, I mean, we mean executive-level people that have direct hands-on investments, investment discretion. So if you've got a team of 15 analysts, maybe the head analyst might be in that position and the other 14 are not. It certainly wouldn't apply to the secretaries, the clerks, you know, the various people working in the family office. And so by definition, you can only include the, the, the executives now, the, the highest level people, and anyone else that's included would, would mandate registration. So the problem here is that one of the reasons to work for a family office is because uh, the, these rank-and-file employees or middle-level employees have access to the family portfolios and get the benefit of their expertise and due diligence and better lawyers and accounts than those individuals can afford and so on and so forth. And suddenly that benefit just went by the wayside. So in effect, even though this is a, a great benefit to these employees, the family no longer has the option to include them because it would require the family to register as a family office. So I think that was misguided. It's an unfortunate result. Um, I think they were trying, again, they're trying to protect these people with the security laws, but the reality is I think they're a lot better off being protected by a family than they are being protected by the SEC. Uh, not a close call in my opinion, but that's the law as it sits. So uh, the definition of the family is important, and you kind of go, go through analysis of who it is. And so in this process, uh, when the law first came out, uh, many families would hire people to give them an opinion and say, are we compliant or aren't we compliant, and what do we have to do to get compliant? So the minute you've got a third party, somebody else's family in your deal, you've got a problem. So people either had to jettison those deals or jettison those parties or turn over that management to somebody else. And, of course, the SEC defines management in the broadest possible sense of the word. So you're a manager of managers, and you've got all your investments running by independent third parties, but the family office is managing that process or selecting them. That's still investment advisory, so you're still caught under this this mix, and you still have to comply mm -hmm. with these rules. So just assume that whenever the SEC is involved, it's a government agency that will take control of anything they can. Their scope is vast, and in their mind, vaster, and they will construe in the broadest possible manner any statute handed them. That's just the reality of it. And so if you make that assumption, uh, you will tend to conduct yourself a little bit more conservatively because, again, even winning one of these, one of these suits – you're stuck in litigation. You're going to be blasted all over their website for doing horrible things that they're going to let. It's merely their allegation, but that's what's going to go up on their press release. Caught this family doing all these horrible things, and they did this, and they violated this, and they knowingly did this, and you didn't knowingly do any of those things. Well, that's what's going to say, and it's going to stay up on the web for about 15 years. So it's a horrible PR problem. If you win the case, there's never going to be anything, oh, by the way, we, 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 were, we settled the case. We didn't prove any of these things. We made this up. None of this is true. That's never going to happen. So the PR fallout and lack of credibility is problematic, and the time aggravation and just financial cost to the family is, is a very bad thing. So for a whole lot of reasons, uh, complying with these difficult rules is very important. Great. Well, Tom, I want to thank you for your time today. It's obvious just in the, the time that we have. I mean, there's, a, there's one a lot more topics that we could discuss, but the the just plethora of information and knowledge uh, that you have and um, that can be helpful for families. So it's no wonder why you're 
you guys are, are doing as well as you are. Um, if people want to get in touch with you, Tom, or, or learn more about um, what you guys do or how, they might, how you might be able to help them, how can they get in touch with you? Sure. Well, our, our website is uh, handlerthayer.com. So they can find us online. And uh, my per, our phone number at the office in Chicago, uh, which can reach out to any one of our people around the country, is 312-641-2100. That's probably the easiest way to uh, reach us. Okay, great. Well, um, Tom, thank you so much for t- you know, being on the call today and, and the podcast. You know, we try to um, – position ourselves with some industry experts in, in the various areas, and this is legal is one area that we have not discussed uh, on any of our podcasts, so it's been a great pleasure um, for the time that you've taken to, to talk with us today, and uh, we definitely want you to come back again in the future. Um, for more information on not only this podcast, but other podcasts and other information from white papers and, and articles, uh, books, and uh, videos, go to usfamilyofficerealestate.com. It's purely education uh, in regards to real estate for families, and so you should find a lot of great information there. And after listening to this podcast, we also suggest that you forward this to to another family office so that they can learn some of this valuable information as well. Tom, thanks again for being on the show today. We really appreciate your time. DJ, it's my pleasure. Thank you for hosting. All right, thank you for listening, and until next time, uh, you can go to usfamilyofficerealestate.com.